Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, I've got Rahul Sood, the co-founder and CEO of Unicorn. And Rahul has an extensive and very impressive history in the tech, gaming and esports market, previously working and founding Voodoo PC, going across to Enterprise, into HP, Microsoft, and then into his own startup as of today. We talk a lot about esports and the current market developments. We talk a little bit about publishers, IP rights holders, touch on quite a bit of cryptocurrency as well and talking about actual use cases for the market because to be honest i haven't really been satisfied with answers or lack thereof about esports and its actual applications in regards to cryptocurrency had a fantastic chat today i learned a lot hopefully you learn a lot as well enjoy Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up into the industry or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going if you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg Rahul, mate, great to finally chat with you. Oh, thank you. You as well. It seems like it's uh, quite sunny over in the US right now, a bit warm. Uh, <laughs> it's it's hot in Seattle, that's for sure. Very hot, yes. Yeah, unfortunately, it's only a few degrees here this morning down in down in Melbourne. We're feeling the um, the UK vibes, I think, at the moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, my uh, my friends in Sydney were saying it's a little cold in Australia, so yeah. Yeah, definitely frosty, definitely frosty this morning. So I wanted to kick this podcast off like we do with uh, basically every single one and, yeah, ask you a little bit about your history in, in gaming, esports and technology. Obviously, you've got yeah quite an extensive history, so take it away. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you know, I've, I've been a, a, a gaming entrepreneur since I was 17. I started a uh, the, the world's first gaming PC manufacturer way back when, and I ended up selling it to HP many years later. Then uh, after selling it to HP, I um, got involved in a few more startups. One of them was a, um, a skill-based wagering uh, startup. And then uh, I, uh, I was a, you know, an early investor or the first investor in Vervana, which sold to Apple. And I was an early investor in Razer. I joined Microsoft, started Microsoft Ventures, worked there for a little while. And then eventually I, I left to start Unicorn. Um, I, I'm in my mid-40s and I play video games every day. So I'm, I'm a gamer. To, to the core. So most certainly an early adopter compared to most. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. When when do you think that gaming will be truly mainstream? You know, I kind of hold the opinion quite often that for me, I was born in 1991. I feel like I'm probably the last generation where not everybody is a gamer. Yeah, no, g- gaming is mainstream. It's just, it's, you know, it depends on what you consider mainstream. Like m- mainstream is basically the, you know, it's, it's one of the largest it is the largest uh, industry, uh, entertainment industry. Mm. It's um, you know, esports in general is the fastest growing sport out there. Um, it you know, it, it may not suit like forty plus year old people, but certainly under that. So um, so gamers start out younger, and uh, and they're expanding now older because they started out you know younger. Um, so yeah, it is mainstream now. Yeah, it's really interesting to see gamers start younger i guess when i was you know in in the heights of what i call my semi-professional gaming career it was very unusual to see a a 15 to 18 year old competing you know in the large leagues on the world stage especially in a game like cs 1.6 but now it seems stacked with 17 year olds yeah absolutely and uh 
And, and you know, n not to mention just when I say gaming starts younger, I'm talking like two years old, you know, mm. people start playing games on iPads and iPhones and, you know, that sort of thing. And, um, and you know, it just kind of grows from there. And, you know, when I was growing up, it wasn't really cool, you know, to be on a computer, but now it's just like everybody, everybody's into tech. So, yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's very much a part of culture now. Yeah, I saw a I saw a funny meme about that the other day, and I wish I saved it, but it was something along the lines of you know these pay pay respect to the kids that were bullied all through school, so you today could actively enjoy anime on social media. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool, and it is really interesting. Um, you know, one of my friends runs Flak Test, which is a a high school esports league here, and he was talking about you know, the, the impact of Fortnite on the kids. And for them, it's not so much necessarily about who's the best player and how to become the best player, but it's about the content they create. Yeah. And it was telling me that clips go viral inside their school where they're all looking at, you know, Johnny's rocket jump from, from year nine and sharing that content around internally. So it's definitely a culture shift. Yeah, not only that, but it's also, um, you know, it's also shifting in other businesses as well. Like Fortnite this year is giving away $100 million in prizes, um, you know, so mm. it's... Um, it's it's definitely you know n not to mention does it go viral clips going viral things like that but it's also very competitive so yeah mm. yeah so so looking straight back to the start for you around the voodoo PC time uh, can you just give us a quick rundown as to you know what a what a gaming PC manufacturer does and what the market was like in those days sure you know we we would we would. Um, we, we, you know, we back then we were competing against big companies like uh, Dell and HP and Compaq, Micron, Gateway, Apple, um, and um, and you know we, we were just hand building PCs, sort of like uh, exotic cars or Ferraris, and and you know back then there there were no like gaming specific PCs, they were very noisy. Um, we created the first liquid cooling systems for mass uh, mass manufacturing. Um, we created active liquid cooling systems that were patented. Um, and we even created the first fanless gaming PC, just completely fanless, no fans at all, no noise. It was, it was amazing. Um, but, but, you know, if you think about it, like a, like a, just a, like a high end car, that's basically what we did. And, and now, uh, not a lot of people know this, but unicorn owns a significant stake in one of the one of the best gaming pc manufacturers on earth called main gear pc it's just uh maingear.com uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> we own a significant stake in them and that's that has a lot to do with my history in the in the gaming space so um so yeah that, that that's that's basically what it is what was the norm in in those days with gaming pcs or kind of conversations that you aren't happening right now um you know if i was to think about esports and i was asked that question my answer would be you know back in the day there would be no conversations about salaries or people would be struggling to fly to tournaments where now it's you know how can you draw out the best timing to fly to so many what what are the major shifts in the industry compared to you know what you're experiencing in voodoo pc versus alienware or main gear today yeah, uh, it's an interesting question. I, I think back then, because the market was so new and there was so much appetite for it, people didn't really care about the price so much. So, um, okay. so they weren't as price sensitive as they are now. Like they're certainly more price sensitive, but but you know, still not as much as as a traditional PC. Mm. So you know, back then, um, our our average selling price was was ten thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, um, so I, I don't think I don't think price was as big a concern as it is now. Um, you know, the, the the other thing is that uh, they they weren't quite as portable as they are now. You know, like we were mm. 
even though laptops were there, you know, that sort of thing, there was no real thin and light gaming type solutions as there are now. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and not to mention, uh, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on touch, you know, so there's just, there's just so many changes that have happened since, since I was in the business, but, um, but the core key, you know, business, um, kind of, uh, you know, pillars are still there and they're very much the same. And, and, and that is, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're going to build a great brand, um, and a great, you know, just a great company, the, the, the first thing you do is not think about the logo that goes on the t-shirt. You have to actually think about the product. So you have to make a really great product that people love. You have to have a team, like a culture, a strong culture, a, a team of people that love the brand and love the product. Um, and then, you know, one thing that people often miss, uh, most companies miss, is you need a community. So you need a community of people that love your product that are evangelists. So if you think about mm. companies that have had been successful, who have followed that model, Tesla, Apple, you know, those kind of companies actually have communities. Ferrari has a community. Um, you know, companies that, that may not have a community are like HP, for example. Um, you know, so, so having a community is really important. And then off, obviously having a, a founder who's sort of visible or the face of the company, I think is also important for a startup anyways. Mm. Um, so things like that, you know, and they still matter. Touching on HP and, you know, your eventual sale, what, what comes into consideration when that happens? You know, as, as someone who's the founder and owner of a company, what's the inflection point of deciding to sell off to the quote-unquote corporate machine versus scaling up and continuing to own the large slice of the pie yourself? Well, for us, it was really just HP needed to, you know, they, they had a lot of innovations within labs and they wanted to leverage those innovations and commercialize them. And we were a small company. And mm-hmm. so being able to leverage that scale and use our brand was a real you know, selling point for us. Obviously, the, the, the money was a big deal, but uh, but that wasn't the core reason we did the deal. We did the deal because we aligned with the management team. Um, little did we realize that, you know, once the acquisition was done, you know, the, the management team would shift priorities, like not only months later, and they wanted us to scale a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. So so they basically bought a Ferrari, um, you know, to, to or, you know, say they bought a Lamborghini and they wanted to build they wanted to take HP up and build a premium line, like an Audi type line, right? Um, yeah. And and we that strategy was working for us, but then they wanted us to do it faster. So we told them, you you can't, like you can't, you know, no matter how much scale you throw at something, you can't take a, a Ferrari or a Lamborghini and 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 turn them into a scale product because otherwise you just ruin the brand and the culture and everything. But they insisted, and and that's when things blew up. <laughs> it was not a very good decision. So yeah. Yeah, interesting, and I, I guess. Just drawing some very basic likenesses to the esports market at the moment. It's the same thing that you can't buy fans. You know, it doesn't matter if you come in with with fifty to hundred million dollars in in VC funding these days. You can't just create the biggest esports team off the bat like you used to be able to. You know, ten years ago with two million in capital, right? Right, exactly. And mm. and in fact, uh, you know, the, the, that brings up a you know, I, I think we're we're jumping around here, but I think it's important when you talk about investments in esports. Um, a lot of the investments have been in teams, you know, and they're, and they parallel it to traditional sports teams, but, but, you know, they, they, they don't realize that, uh, this business is still very nascent and you, you know, these, you know, big franchises take time to grow and build. Uh, mm. so, so now investors are looking for, you know, core businesses in esports that, that like are big platforms and, and unicorn is sort of becoming a hot item as a result of our platform. So, you know, um, it's interesting to watch this business grow. So going from an entrepreneur to the, to the finance sector, you made a move over to Microsoft and became a, a term that I like to that I that I like to learn about recently, which is intrapreneur. 
uh, in the creation of Microsoft Ventures. Can can you walk me through um, how does someone become an entrepreneur? How does how does someone you know create new things within such a large moving beast? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, at Microsoft it was really hard because the, the company really wasn't relevant with startups when I was there, and you know we wanted to make them more relevant. So mm-hmm. the idea was that we would invest in startups and then help them build and grow. But but Microsoft's uh, core uh, strategy didn't align with that um, because at the time they had about eighty billion dollars of cash in the bank, mm-hmm. and and they their their answer was you know this is straight from Steve Ballmer why would I invest in startups if if uh, you know the amount that you make in a return is going to be a, a a rounding error on our balance sheet and it made sense so so we took a different approach and that was well who are Microsoft's biggest customers people like Bank of America and Lowe's and Home Depot these companies are struggling to innovate mm. so what if we invested in startups in certain verticals and then connected them to Microsoft's largest customers then it would become an innovation platform and that's how Microsoft Ventures took off that's how they they approved it because the even though it was the exact same thing the way we we pivoted it was just pivoting the story a little bit to align with the strategy and align with the management team so how do you become an entrepreneur in a big company you do by listening. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. And I, th- you know, I think for me, you know, once again, relating it back to esports, there seems to be a lot of entrepreneurs in the university space right now. Are you finding that too in the in the US, mirroring Australia? Um, you mean like in in the corporate space? Yeah, I mean just around universities, you know, coming into esports, they're usually a massive behemoth. The universities are are known for moving very slow, or colleges as far as it goes in the US. You know, I, I feel like that's probably a prime place if you're looking to make a bit of a difference in a large company and have that safety net of a salary behind you rather than leaving and creating your own startup. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a that's a respectable way to do it, but just just keep in mind that um you know, a, a real entrepreneur can only do it for so long before they lose their mind. So, mm. you know, uh, when I was at Microsoft, I loved it. Like, that's how I met Carl and, you know, my business partner, you know, that sort of thing. I, I met a lot of really great people. The company was amazing. I would never uh, disparage them in any way. Um, but, you know, I'm an entrepreneur and I got, you know, I, I felt like I was, uh, you know, like dying inside. <laughs> so <laughs> I needed to get out and go do something. So no matter what, even if you're you know, you're doing something as an entrepreneur inside an organization. If you're not moving quick enough, or even even once you move and you get something off the ground, if there if you don't feel like there's a lot of upside, you know that sort of thing. Eventually, you're going to get tired of it and you want to move on. So, um, and and plus, uh, the, the biggest thing about being an entrepreneur is like a you know a real entrepreneur. It, it's it's uh, you have a limited runway, and the runway is what drives you, right? Mm. So you know if your runway starts running down. You're going to be out there, not just raising money, but you're going to be hustling, building products, scaling the business, like doing all sorts of things to get the business to take off. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. I, Whereas in a big company, you don't care. Your check is always going to come in. So, yeah, that's very true. Yeah. It's a different, different motivator and a different amount of drive for sure. I was listening to a Gimlet Media podcast the other day called Without Fail, which is about, you know, people who've who've created new things or and or large companies. And it was a really interesting analogy where someone was talking about um, they're an entrepreneur within an organization and, and they feel that their case is that they've been given their favorite meal of all time to have for dinner. However, they're never allowed to get up from the dinner table and they have to eat that meal for the rest of their life. I thought that was an interesting analogy and it seems to align a bit with what you're saying. Yeah, that, that is an interesting analogy, yes. Yep. Yeah. So moving on to Unicorn, obviously, which is the main thing we're going to be talking about today, you know, as a CEO and co-founder of yourself. Um, is the Has the business model primarily changed at its core over that period of time? Has there been any major pivots? Um, well, there's been, there's been like one pivot and that was, you know, at the beginning of the business – 
we unicorn is a well. L- let me just start with what it is. So so we are a um, we're we're an esports betting platform, esports and video game betting platform. Mm-hmm. Unicorn sits at the intersection of three very explosive industries. Um, one is esports and video games. The second is blockchain and cryptocurrency, and the third is regulated gambling. Right. And when we set out to build this business, we set out to build the most comprehensive, to be the most comprehensive bookmaker for esports on earth. And uh, and Tab Corp, which is you know Australia's biggest bookmaker, they they invested in us. And uh, and initially, our plan was to to build Unicorn um, and focus on the front end and focus on the systems, but connect to the back end of a wagering operator that has the licenses mm-hmm. is going to deal with the customer KYC, AML, the payments, the risk, that sort of stuff. And what we found was um, that worked for you know for just building the company, but it wouldn't work for um, for really growing the company because the systems were completely different, the experience was broken. Um, they didn't fully understand our customer base, not to mention uh, we needed to move way faster. Mm. Um, so so the big pivot was that we hired some of the best people from the wagering industry. We hired the you know the next in line uh, for CEO at Tabcorp. Um, he's an amazing guy. He was one of four people in the world that could have done this job. So he's our COO. Uh, we hired you know one of the best data guys that we could find. Um, you know we hired an amazing money laundering risk officer. She lives in Isle of Man. Uh, we hired a CFO from William Hill. Mm. Um, we just hired some unbelievable people, right? And we built we, we built some strong wagering DNA for the business, and and then we created our entire backend ourselves. And normally, you know, bookmakers they they license that technology from other companies. Mm-hmm. We built it all from the ground up because we support blockchain and crypto. And no one else did. Yeah, I think what you're identifying there sounds very similar to what so many people are going through in esports right now, which is, do you align with with traditional older industries or do you go out and create the whole thing yourself? And it looks like you've sat on both sides of the fence. Yeah, we, we had to create it ourselves, but then that also required us to go out and, you know, get our own license and uh, very expensive dealing with regulators and lawyers and things like that. But we did it. So, yeah. Mm. So betting is, is something quite different seemingly than what you've done in the past how does a how does an idea like this come around oh very funny uh, so while we it's a funny story we we, we invested in a um, a small sydney-based gaming company mm-hmm. um and the the ceo his name is carl flores um carl flew out to microsoft to meet me and you know we got along really well um i worked with him for you know about two years and then uh, <clears throat> and you know he just liked to gamble like in sports <laughs> and he also liked to play video games and 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 before I joined Microsoft, I started a betting platform on video games called PlayAll. I started it with our CTO Daniel, mm-hmm. and we ended up shelving it. But basically, it was an amazing platform that let you play skill games against your friends for money. And we built everything from the back end systems, the front end, the, the front end client, the payment system, the anti cheat system, and a matchmaking system. We built all of it, and we had about eight thousand users running on it. But uh, we ended up shelving it back in 2010 because we didn't want to deal with the uh, regulatory side of things, and we weren't really sure about um, the customer retention side. Mm-hmm. Like on a skill on a skill betting platform, normally if I play against you in a video game and you lose, uh, and I'm really good, you're never going to want to play me again, right? It's very much like online poker. Mm. So, um, so anyways, the the three of us got together, you know, uh, and talked about the esports and how big it was getting. Hundreds of millions of people were watching people play video games on the Microsoft platform. And Carl, my business partner, was, you know, he's a big big time, you know, better, and he likes to play games. And I told him about PlayAll, 
And basically the three of us got together and said, let's go do this. Let's, let's build, you know, the best bookmaker we can on esports, and uh, we'll pull together the play all assets and, you know, make this happen. And that's how it started. Yeah. Interesting. And it seems like you kind of fell into the lap with finding a few great co-founders, which is fantastic. Do you have any advice for, for startup CEOs that are looking for a great co-founder today? Is there a few qualities that they should look out for? Well, you got, you got to find people that, that complement your weaknesses. So, you know, mm. in, in our case, if all three of us were the same, we'd be screwed, but we're not. I mean, you know, da- Daniel's a very structured kind of person. Um, uh, we, you know, our COO, who's also, uh, you know, at the founder level now is very structured and very much a, a COO, a whip in the machine. Carl is a visionary product person. So he's, he's a really structured when it comes to product and he's got great ideas and he's also a lot of energy. So he's, he's very much core to our culture. And then myself, I, I tend to, you know, set the company vision and, and I'm like the ultimate spokesperson for the company and, you know, the brand evangelist. And I speak with investors. I do the job that nobody else wants to do, but just like they do jobs that, <laughs> you know, no one else wants to do their job either. So I think that's key. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a, a perfectly well-measured response. And look, looking over this period of time, you know, Unicorn started out at its core just as a betting product and have added services, you know, over the quite a few years you've been operating. What has been the decision or or how has a decision been made to start adding products or services for you? Has it been cash flow related? Has it been just opportunistic related invest pushes from investors or other motives? Well, it's never a push from investors. It's it's always um it's always, you know, if we see something that aligns strategically with where we're going with our vision, we'll we'll get on it. Obviously, the risk is that you don't want to do too many things. And, you know, we've been known to Mm. in the past, we've kind of done that, you know, we've caught ourselves doing it. And, you know, we get off of it, and we start to focus, like every startup, you know, we go through different things. Sometimes we make mistakes, sometimes we we get we hit it out of the park. Um, Luckily, when we hit it out of the park, we hit it way out of the park. So we end up, you know, uh, just doing great things. So, um, but you know, at the end of the day, if, if what we're looking at doesn't align with our core business and doesn't sit at the intersection of blockchain, video games, and gambling, then we won't look at it. Mm. Um, but if it does, then we'll absolutely consider it. Yeah, it's an interesting thing you were talking about, you know, trying not to do too many things. One of my last podcasts uh, with Pete Carilli from Game in Australia, who's a traditional radio presenter here in Australia, but also hosts the largest um, gaming podcast we had a long discussion about people trying to do too many things at once, and it seems to be a very common thing in esports. While a lot of people are fighting for cash flow, you know, they're fighting for revenue. Um, they're, they're trying to put too many things on your plate. What's your What's your answer for that? How can you easily identify as a startup founder or a worker when there's just too much going on and you need to focus more on your core product and services? Uh, so you're asking me what, what is the question on that? So. How do you how do you identify as a founder that you are trying to do too many things that you're being pulled in too many directions? Oh, e- easily. I mean, you know, for, for me, uh, w- you know, you just kind of look right and you see what's going on. And if we're, you know, if if we have, um, you know, people start feeling flustered, uh, you can tell by the temperature of the people. Uh, you can tell by people are demoralized. I can just tell just by looking at my COO, and and you know, he'll just t- he'll outright and tell me like, you know, we have to be able to sequentially put this thing on our roadmap. If it makes sense, we'll do it. If it doesn't, you know, there's just too much going on. I mean, you know, the, the probably the best way to tell if you're doing too much is, it's just the temperature of the people really. Like if they're not happy, there's usually a reason why they're not happy. And it's usually because they're working on something that they don't care about. Right. Mm. So, um, so that, that could very much be an indicator for what you're doing wrong. Yeah, so changing tact a little bit to have a bit of a chat about cryptocurrency and, and esports. I'm really interested to learn from you some practical applications. It's it's some questions that I've been asking over a period of time and, to be honest, I haven't quite been satisfied with the answer so far. And 
this is something that you and I talked a little bit pre-podcast about. So, you know, what is the fit for cryptocurrency right now in esports? Is there one that's being invented? Are you waiting for one to come along? You know, what's your solution and ideas? No, I, I, I think we have the, I really do believe this, right? And I might be a little biased, but I'm also, you know, um, we built this token economy in 2015. I think Unicorn has the best use case for cryptocurrency uh, in esports than anyone in the world. Mm. And, and, you know, we, we have a, a cryptocurrency that we created where people can come on the platform. They can uh, start by trading in skins for crypto if they want. So they can trade in, your, you know, your favorite skins. You can connect your favorite video game to the platform. So we're not just a bookmaker. We're, we're a place where people can come connect their favorite game, whether it's League of Legends or Fortnite or Rainbow Six, whatever they play, they can connect to the platform and they can start earning mm -hmm. coins. Um, and then they can use those coins in various ways. They can use it in jackpots to win, you know, digital goods and prizes. Uh, they can place bets with it, um, you know, so they can bet on all of the major tournaments. They can bet on streamers like Twitch streamers. Um, they can bet on 24-7 virtual esports betting. It's very similar to the 24-7 virtual horse racing, but it's actually esports. And, um, and then uh, because we, we allow them to connect their games to the account, we collect data and we ha we put handicaps on users. So we have the biggest handicap book in the world on, on users. Um, and so we can put odds on your chances of winning games. So earlier I mentioned to you that skill betting has a big challenge, which is if you bet against me and you lose, you're never going to come back to the platform and play mm -hmm. me again. Our skill betting works differently. Our skill betting works, you bet on yourself. So if you play a game like Fortnite, you can bet on yourself and we'll give you markets to bet on. Um, or League of Legends or whatever. So for example, in League of Legends, if I want to bet on my next rank game and I think I'm going to get under one and a half deaths and a win, I get 5.9 odds. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. So if I bet, say, 2,200 UKG, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get a return of like 13,000 UKG. Um, so it's, it's really, really interesting what we've done. So not only have we got a spectator betting or sportsbook platform, but we also have a skill betting platform as and well. What's the sentiment with the publishers around that? And how, how's your relationship with them? Is there any transfer of IP that, that you need approval for? No. So um, so our uh, relationship has grown over the years. <laughs> it started out really kind of weird because at the beginning in 2014, none of them wanted to talk about gambling. Mm. But over the years, it's gotten better. Um, you know, the fact that we are a legit operator and you know, we got we got a license and you know we we work well with regulators they really respect that mm. plus um, plus we built the unicorn platform so we have our own we, we built a technical mode around the company that doesn't require intervention from the publisher so we don't modify their apis we don't mess with their content we just do it ourselves um which which is why we're able to do what we do yeah interesting yeah there's there's definitely a lot of um there's a lot of ip questions i, I feel like have started coming around in the past couple of years working uh, working with the publishers, there's a lot of things happening in Australia at the moment where it's it's found out that leagues aren't getting proper approval and, and you know, with esports lawyers and stuff coming into the space. But obviously, this is something that you have to be hyper aware of, with, which is like you identified before, right? Having to work with Tabcorp to get through some of that bureaucracy and red tape. Does does that mean that your legal team is, is quite long and, um, and large in Unicorn? Yeah, <laughs> it does mean that actually. Like we yeah. have a, we have an internal lawyer, we have a corporate lawyer, we have a lawyer for our gambling business, we have an international lawyer for our gambling business, and then we have two blockchain lawyers. So 
yeah, we definitely have a lot of lawyers that we work with, but you know, it is what it is in your growing business. So mm. by the way, if you hear that snoring in the background, that's my dog. I apologize. <laughs> that's okay. a little loud. No worries at all. So let me, let me stay on the path of cryptocurrency and esports. then. Do you, do you see any other major positive applications besides the betting industry right now for crypto and esports? Well, okay, so let's be honest. The the biggest use case for crypto right now is speculation and exchanges, mm. right? That's making, you know, the most money in the space. Um, you know, but uh but that's going to change because, you know, young people like cryptocurrency, Bitcoin is only going to go up in value. I think Bitcoin is is a very very uh amazing like there's been nothing like it in the past decade in terms of an investment or a a, a currency that can be traded and used in various ways. So, so the best use case for blockchain right now is Bitcoin. The biggest uh, businesses um, and the biggest use case for crypto in general is speculation and, uh, and, and trading. But the next wave is going to be platforms that have real use cases. And I think the next wave is, is Unicorn uh, and companies like us because we deal with a younger customer. Uh, we deal with people who are crypto you know, uh, you know, enthusiasts. Um, and over time, as as our tools get easier to use and as our crypto gets more discoverable, we think that our platform is, is the type of platform that will be the next wave of crypto adoption. Um, so that's going to take a bit of time, but I, I really think like within the next uh, you know, 12 to 18 months, you're going to see some massive growth in this space. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to me because I feel like uh, a lot of the time in cryptocurrency, not just in esports, but globally, people have been trying to look for problems to solve or solve problems that don't exist. So I'm very interested to see you know, as I guess one of those young people that are interested in this space, you know, what, what can cryptocurrency actually do for me and what can it do for the market? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think you're right. I think a, a lot of companies, uh, platforms, you know, we're, we're looking to shoehorn blockchain into their platform for mm. you know, interesting ways to raise money. And, you know, public markets like the word blockchain. They like the word esports, you know, lo and behold. And they also like wagering now that the U.S. is legalizing wagering. Mm. So, you know, the fact that we sit in all three is pretty amazing, but not everybody does. So they try and shoehorn different things into the business. But I can tell you that, um, you know, as I, as I said, the, the, the use case for, for cryptocurrency is only going to expand. And, and, and I think that our, our use case is just a perfect use case for it. So, yeah. So we touched on uh, teams very briefly before. And, you know, for those who don't know, Unicorns uh, invested and involved with Berlin International Gaming, which is the name of my own heart being big. Yeah. Can, can you tell me a little bit about why you got into the team space? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, you know, um, so first off, we are a, uh, you know, a company that, um, you know, is a community first company. So, you know, when you think about Unicorn, think of it like this, you, you know, would you ever see somebody uh, walking on, down the streets wearing like a tab or you know, hat, mm. like if they're a customer of the platform, like never, right. It's never going to happen. I mean, if they work at tab, they might have a tab cover shirt that they wear, but you'll never see somebody, you know, walking around wearing swag. Um, but unicorn aims to be different. We, we aim to be like a, a you know, a fan loved fan first company, as I mentioned earlier about, you know, companies building community and, and part of building community is, is creating a, a brand that, that people love. Um, and, and so that's kind of like the, the approach that we take when we think about, you know, new products and, uh, you know, our approach to, to, to business. And so we, we stepped into the team space because, you know, we wanted to give back to the community. Um, we chose Germany as our base of operations because one in five Germans watch esports. Those guys were really awesome. They're, you know, they were very entertaining people. They're very fun to be around. Mm-hmm. Um, they did really well in the first year that we started them. Mm-hmm. They came in top five in the world. 
Um, and it was a big, it was a big deal for us. You know, they, 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 they came, uh, they, they, you know, they, they had this huge event in Germany where they, they hit the semifinal and they won. And, um, you know, our Jersey was all over the stadium. It was just really, really good karma for, for unicorn. And just generally it was a good deal. As an investor in the team, you know, there's been a lot of discussion globally around esports teams and, and cash flow issues and, and business models. You know, Forbes has identified that according to them, there's only one cash flow positive team in the world, Team Solo Mid. Um, there's a lot of teams with hyperinflated valuations compared to what their revenues are, you know, anywhere from, from 10 to 25x. What's the pathway to profitability do you think for teams, is it a change in business model? Is it a change in industry trends? Or is it just riding out the wave as more big money and sponsors start to come in? I think it's it's a combination of it. Um, it's a combination of the, you know, those things. Um, I think, you know, s- some teams are, are going into too many areas, like they're, they're diversifying in mm. multiple ways just to bring revenue in. So you kind of touched on that earlier. Uh, but the other thing is um, investors got really excited. I mean, they started paralleling these teams with like, you know, Man, you and and you know that sort of thing, right? And it's just not the same. Um, it's uh, you know esports is very fragmented and it's hard because there's different games out there. You know um, you have pu- you have some publishers that are charging ridiculous amounts for a slot. You know so they have to invest in those slots. And you know if if there's not enough viewers, that's a challenge. Mm. You've got multiple esports coming. So <clears throat> not only do you have things like the NBA and the NFL and Major League Soccer and F1 racing, you also have you know. CSGO and League of Legends and Overwatch and all of that stuff that are, you know, that are out there. So there's it's very fragmented. So when you invest in a team, you have to be careful because then you have to invest in multiple players, multiple teams, houses, training, psychologists, you know, nutritionists, like it's, it's not an easy business. And so that's why um, those who went crazy on teams are now looking at esports and saying, well, what the hell, you know, there's hundreds of millions of people. How are, how is, you know, how do you monetize this business? Mm. And that's why they're sort of going full circle and looking at platforms like Unicorn. So, um, so I don't know. I, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but I think it does require patience. Yeah. And I'd love to add something else and, and get your thoughts on that too. You were saying that, you know, there's hundreds of millions of people watching esports. How do you draw money out of them? The really interesting issue that we have in Australia and many other developing markets is, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of esports players. Where are they? How do how do we find them? Where are they engaging? They're playing League of Legends matchmaking, but why are they not interested in esports? Do they not know about it? You know, how do we reach them? Yeah, I mean, look, there are there are people that play the games, there are people that stream the games, and and you know they may not watch um, you know the professionals play. Um, you know, so over time, I think you'll see those areas blend. But esports and you know is very unique because it's. Uh, you know, it's it, it's it's not like um, it's it's not as mature as traditional sports, where you know if you're if you watch baseball, you might play baseball, right? Mm. It, it's not quite like that. Um, it's uh, it's it's like two kind of converging areas that over time will converge and get much bigger and make the esports viewing even bigger than what it is today. Um, but 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 that's why we have things like U mode, you know, where where you can bet on yourself, you know, that sort of thing, and we're you know, we're doing, we're going community first to create that awareness around it. Um, it is challenging. It, it's, you're very much talking to different people, mm. right? Like I, I might play League of Legends every day, but I might not be as interested in watching all of the, you know, League of Legends events. I'd prefer to watch CSGO, for example. Mm. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Very true. Very true. What's, what's coming up next for Unicorn? What's on the, on the soon to be horizon? Yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff coming. So we have a new wallet system coming that's going to allow for more payment, payment types um you know including more cryptos um we have uh, a bunch of new titles coming to our virtual betting and new mode um 
And then we have a huge announcement coming later this year. Um, you know, you can think that, yeah, I, I can't really say too much about it, but I can just say that, you know, if you think Unicorn is currently an esports only company, um, but, you know, over time, I think you're going to see a lot of interest in us expanding our business. <laughs> so, um, so we have a huge announcement coming later this year. You just have to wait and see what happens. So, yeah. yeah. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't for esports for you, what would it be? Is, is it always going to be technology? Uh, you mean, even if I wasn't doing unicorn? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I, you know, I've obviously been in technology my entire life and, you know, there was at one point in time I said, I'd go, you know, after after Unicorn, maybe do like an e-bike or an e-skateboard type company or a or, or an RC helicopter type thing. Um, I'm really into that sort of stuff mm. or a drone company. But, um, you know, it could be something simple like a dog wash. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. That sounds interesting. I, I wanted to get um, some of your thoughts too about HR and startups and dealing with staff. You, you talked about it before. It, it seems like you have a bit of a knack for identifying when people are, are burnt out and getting a bit jaded with their work. But you know, being someone yourself who's worked with startups, whether you've owned them or from the early stage, what are some applicable things that founders can do when they've, you know, found themselves with a bit of capital and anywhere from three to 10 staff? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so you, you mean like uh, in terms of what, uh, keeping people motivated? Yeah, keeping people motivated, setting the culture. Because yeah. obviously, I guess the, the trend in HR um, or the cliche is, you know, table tennis tables and taking people yeah, on director's yeah. retreats, but it's just simply not feasible when you've got, you know, a few no. months of runway to go and you're trying to scale up no, no, it, it, it's not just not feasible it's not really it's not the same anymore because in the past you'd you'd create a business in a building and you'd set up that building in a certain way and you'd have a lot of fun you'd have a lot of face time mm. but unicorn is is a wildly different company for me like it's the first time i've ever built an international company where because because we're in this intersection of those three and those three major industries you're never going to find people that are experts in all of those areas in one building um you know, so so our the best blockchain developers in the world are based in Berlin. You know, we have people in Poland and Croatia that do development for us. Um, you know, the the best gaming talent you'll find. There's a lot in the Seattle area. Um, you know, there's there's certainly a lot in the U.S. So we've got offices in Seattle, New York, and uh, Las Vegas. Um, and then you know, for content creation and marketing and you know, gaming and things like that. And then the best wagering talent, bar none, uh, anywhere on the planet. Doesn't matter where you go. It's not in Las Vegas. It's actually in, in Australia, right? They, they those guys are the best bookmakers out there. They know that's why there's so many Australians in you know Vegas because they they know how to run that business really well. Mm. So it's like Australia, maybe parts of the UK and Europe. Um, and so we had to build a company that that would be able to um, you know to transcend those borders and keep a very common culture amongst us. So we have a we have a what we call a, um, a follow the sun development model where you know we're there's always new product being developed 24 hours a day. Um, we've got, you know, we use online systems like Slack, you know, to c communicate with each other. Um, and there's a lot of communication. We use Hangouts. We do a lot of video calls. Um, and then, you know, every now and then we, we get together and, you know, have some fun. But um, but it's it's just really about measuring the temperature of the team and having constant communication with people. So, um, so you, you know, that's how you tell. But I think if people are working on something they love, it's a, it's a lot easier to to create a sustainable culture than if you're doing something that just nobody wants to do, right? Yeah, and I f it's a definitely an interesting shift in thinking as well, right? You don't have to ship everybody in nine to five on the Facebook shuttle 
into the office, you know, to have your daily stand-ups, your weekly meetings and these kind of things. If you can hire good staff and trust them to work online and remain accountable to you on Slack, then, you know, you can get great things done. Yeah, that's true. But there still has to be strong leadership in each area, though. So you have to have strong leadership in each of the core areas. Um, You know, you can't just leave people alone in a silo for a long time. Um, so you often have to visit or have a strong leadership in the in the near area, mm. which is why we have you know really strong leaders in Sydney. We have strong leaders in in Berlin. Uh, you know, strong leaders in the U.S. You have to make sure you have good leadership. Can you tell me a bit more about the Follow the Sun model? Where did that idea come from, and and how's it been working for you? Um, well, I think the Follow the Sun model really came from our CTO uh, more than anything. And you know, the the idea is that you have you know you have systems and processes in place that. Uh, you know, people use online tools like Jira or Confluence to kind of build stories for, how, you know, software development. Mm. And, and then those things are carried over across borders. Um, you know, people have their own tasks. Uh, so when somebody falls asleep, another person wakes up and they kind of take over. Um, and it's, it kind of started with just his processes. And, um, you know, our CTO is a brilliant guy. He's probably the smartest person I've ever met inside and outside of Microsoft. Um, and, um, you know, we always thought he was really hard, you know, like to, 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 to work for at the beginning. Um, but once you figure it out, you know, and what he's actually doing, he's, he's, he's incredible. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Is, and is that something you think that is, is stuck only to the development uh, industry into coding or is this something that other people can implement? Well, I think it's, you know, it, it, it's obvious. I guess it could be implemented in various business models, um, you know, uh, depending on the business. But, um, but I think in our case, it, it is very much, you know, development, marketing, like we use it in marketing, we use it in all sorts of parts of the business um, mm. where, you know, somebody might have a project, you know, and then, you know, when they fall asleep, someone else takes over that project. So the next day you wake up, there's more progress on the project. It happens in all aspects of our business, not just the software development. Yeah, you've definitely got my brain ticking. I'm, I'm thinking right now about, yeah, useful applications for that. It sounds like a really interesting method. Do you know, do you know anyone else that uses this method to success? Did, did he uh, kind of invent this idea? Was it, was it taken from a popular book or podcast or...? No, no, no. I, I think we just sort of came up with it. And, um, you know, I, I, I have a, um, a, a cousin who, who does like consulting and, and he's sort of developing this, this model for companies and helping them think about how to do it. Okay. But we built it ourselves. We came up with the model ourselves, um, you know, and, uh, and sh- I'm sure other people will, will form, you know, versions of it. But this is something that we completely did in-house. Yeah, I'm definitely getting a um a bit of a trend from yourself and Unicorn, which is yeah, we see something, we like it, we go and build it, and we own it. <laughs> yeah, pr- pretty much. You know, it it doesn't always have to be that way though. But in our case, we really didn't have a choice. I mean, you know, we when when we when we set out to separate um, our business from TabCorp, we we had to go and you know either license a backend that was capable of doing all the things we wanted to do or building it, and nobody was was ready for it. Like nobody was ready for crypto. You know, when, when we were starting looking at, you know, doing something with Ethereum, no one wanted to touch it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and now, and then, you know, you saw what happened in 2017, 2018 with the market crash, everybody wanted to stay away from Bitcoin, but now that Bitcoin's coming back, everybody wants to come back into the space. And, you know, we're, we're long this space. We understand it better than anyone does. I think, uh, you know, in our business, I think our platform is probably three years ahead of the rest of the wagering industry. Um, so I, I expect that traditional, the largest traditional wagering operators will continue to contact us. And one of these days, you know, there's going to be some like merger acquisition talks and, you know, we'll be in the driver's seat at that point. Um, you know, so we'll see where it goes, but I really expect that to happen. Mm, and I've, I've been developing this thought over time. So I apologize if it doesn't come out cleanly, but it, it sounds a lot like what yourself and Unicorn are trying to work on 
is is a different way of thinking than many others in the market. Most people are coming and thinking, what's the next trend and how can I attach myself to it? Where I feel like you're more so thinking about what's the best solution and how can I do what's best for myself and my fans? And that may become the trend, it may not. Yeah, exactly. Like if it makes sense, you know, for us to implement something, we'll do it. You know, the reason we went into blockchain um, was because A, we already had a token economy and B, um, we we wanted to disrupt the banking business. Like it, it, we wanted to open up uh, you know, our businesses across Europe, but having to deal with banks and traditional banking was a really slow, cumbersome process. So one of our investors, Mark Cuban, actually told us to get on blockchain. This is in 2016. Mm. So that's uh, that's kind of what sparked us. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's always very interesting talking to a, a seasoned uh, entrepreneur and founder such as yourself, because the answers always sound so easy to so many of these things. It's uh, a question of, you know, how do you know when to do something? And the answer is, well, it just makes sense. How do you how do you develop that sense within yourself? Is this something that you've always had? Is this something that you develop over a period of time and working in so many different capacities? Uh, it, it's really simple. It's it's you look for the simplest route to to fix the problem. You know, and and, and sometimes you know you, you may have a problem. Um, you know, and I learned this back in my computer days with Voodoo, mm. where you might have a problem with a system, and you know, and and you'll have like a like an engineer running through the, the the system trying to figure out the problem by doing the most complex things when it's something very simple right and it's it's like it's a power cord or you know it's like a piece of ram but it's something very simple that you that you figure out so really it's just about um you know finding simple solutions to complex problems and um you know at the same time uh it's it's just common sense you know and i and i think um yeah, i i know that you know our <laughs> there's uh, our c our coo uh, his name is andrew voris i mentioned him to you the guy from tabcorp um mm. brilliant guy he's going to be listening to this and he's going to be laughing his ass off because he's going to be thinking oh that's how you do it hey eh? like he's just <laughs> a uh he's a very funny guy but really he's doing a lot of the work um you know and i'm just kind of like you know taking cues from him in many ways but um but you know, it is it is really just a simple thing. If you if you run into a problem, you want to find a simple solution to it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Another another question that I've been forming over this period of time too that, that mightn't come out perfectly is I'm I'm really interested to know when you know personally it's time to move on um, from an industry or move on to something else. Do you miss working in the gaming PC market, for example, or do you feel like that's something that's serviced and something you never go back to? Oh man, that's a hard question. Um, you know, how, how did I? How about this? How did I know when to move on from HP? I, I knew when to move on from HP when the culture was not what I had built or what I envisioned it to be, mm-hmm. right? And so, so I guess the best answer to that is when one of the four components starts to break down, or two of the four components, or the you know the the three or four components that I mentioned earlier. That is community, fan base, like evangelists. Um, you know, the founder, uh, you know, is 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 uh, is no longer needed or the product starting to suck or change, or uh, you know, the culture of the team is starting to fall apart. If those things start to happen and you start to lose two or four of those things, then it's either time to move on or you got to fix it very quickly, um, you know, before things blow up. Mm. So, keeping a temperature on those areas is really important. But what about the industry as a whole? I guess for me, this this is something doing doing too many things is something that I've always struggled with, as as many others in the industry, right? And and for me, I was a a commentator for a period of time and the thought often pops into my head, you know, why did I leave commentary? Why didn't I stick with it? You know, I was a player for a period of time. I was a journalist. I worked in 
in um, PR and marketing for manufacturers like Thermaltake and Corsair. And for me, every single time, I often think, well, this is it. This is the thing that I'm going to do forever. And then after a while, it kind of falls by the wayside and I move on to the next thing. Do you have similar thoughts to this at all? And, and how do you know when to move on from an industry as a whole, not just a specific company? I don't think I, I have that worry only because um – you know, if 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 things shift so much in the in say the the, the wagering space that we're in, right, in in the three kind of blocks that we're in, which is blockchain, esports, and uh, you know, and uh, regulated wagering, mm. if they shift so much that it's time to move on, then then you've got you've either got a problem or you're doing something wrong, right? Um, you know, I, I think I think for me, the time to move on is when I feel that the company is sustainable and it's successful, mm-hmm. and I've been able to kind of you know, give back to the investors, you know, uh, not only what they put in, but give them a good return. And then I'll feel good about it. Um, you know, to, to me, I, I hate to say this, but failure is just not an option at, at this point. Um, in the company itself, I encourage, you know, failure, like I encourage trying things, breaking things, you know, as often as possible, mm-hmm. because that's the best way to, you know, to hit things out of the park. But, but at this point, I think we've gotten so big, uh, you know, over the last few years, uh, that it would just be a you know failure is just not an option. Mm. So yeah, yeah, measured a measured response as always. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's been it's been great to chat to you today, mate. There's there's one question, uh, another one, I guess I've been brewing for a while that I'd love to talk to you about. You know, in this hyper growth period of of esports, do you think that it's everybody's responsibility, or they should assume the role of growing the industry, or is there a period of time where people should? you know, just focus on themselves internally and growing their company. Oh, I, I think, I think everybody should focus on, on, on growing their, their, their business and focusing on what they do best to, to the business. Mm. I think, um, you know, it's, it's probably no one's responsibility to focus on the entire industry. Look, you know, at the end of the day, industries, um, they mature, they have many bubbles, you know, the esports industry has had at least two bubbles, you know, in the past. And, and maybe we're at a point right now with the team investments that it's a little bit bubblish, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it, as time goes on and as a bubble breaks, it just gets stronger, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, it's it's similar to the, you know, to the uh, the Bitcoin or the crypto industry where, you know, Bitcoin's had a few bubbles and a few bubble pops, but over time it's grown. And esports is only growing bigger. You know, if you think about the age of the players and, and the people that are involved in the space, um, it's expanding, right? It starts out younger and, it, and, and they're getting older. I'm in my mid 40s and I play video games on a daily basis. I'm a bit of an anomaly, but people in their 30s and 20s, it's not it's not uncommon. And and not to mention the fact that, you know, the 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 average age of a major league baseball fan is like 55. The average age of somebody who watches uh, horse racing is around 60 or over. Mm. The average age of somebody who watches uh, golf is 65. And so traditional sports are becoming less relevant and esports are becoming more relevant. So you're going to see these trends expand over time. And, you know, this space is only going to get bigger. It's just patience and timing, mm. you know, um, and and really just understanding that even though there's hundreds of millions of people watching this stuff, you can't just overnight monetize it. But there are like, you know, there are really, really interesting um, hints and highlights in the space, you know, where you see Ninja making over a million dollars a month streaming. You see his face on a Red Bill can. You see him on the cover of ESPN. You see McDonald's, uh, you know, doing a, a big ad campaign and dumping the German Football League and doing a big ad, a big ad campaign on esports. And their menu board has, you know, language from CSGO like GLHF and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then you see, 
the uh, Nike coming in and sponsoring a League of Legends player, a Chinese League of Legends player next to LeBron James, and then also Nike sponsoring the League of Legends League, right? These things just are are amazing, and it's only going to get bigger from here. Mm, I think it's very easy to forget about the relative size of esports compared to other industries as well. It feels so massive as to where it was 10 years ago, which is true, but still compared to some of these you know, NBA teams and, and European football league teams, we really are still early adopters and the market is quite infant where we are. And I think people can get caught up in the fact that they like to compare themselves to others. They compare themselves to a $300 million Forbes-based valuation of Cloud9 and think, I could never get to that situation. But I've Ultimately, I think the market's so infinite and so small that if you build something great today with a couple of hundred thousand dollars of capital, there's no reason you can't be a market leader in whatever section of the esports industry you want to do, unless you're maybe buying a franchise off an IP holder like a publisher. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, uh, yeah, no, I think that, that sums it up well. Mm. I agree. I want to get a few more thoughts from you um, in regards to that franchise model and you know, IP rights holders, you know, big uh, Berlin International Gaming is a major player in the CSGO space. Is is that a something that you agree with? Do you think that, that franchising is going to push us into the future or, or is it an old thing that should maybe be left by the wayside? You mean you mean team franchising? Yeah, team franchising in regards to, you know, Blizzard, Activision, League of Legends, etc. Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> well, um, yeah. So, so are you talking about the publishers franchising yes. and that sort of thing? Yeah. I think that's a tough one, man. I think they're asking too much money. Like I think when, when, when the Overwatch League came out, I was like, this thing is not going to work. They're charging way too much. Investors are going to lose a lot of money and everyone's going to get pissed off. So they have to have a way to fix that. And I, I said that right at the beginning. I said it publicly, probably lost a lot of uh, fans as a result of that. But, you know, that's the fact. And, and you, can't, you can't let greed drive decision making in this business, right? Um, you know, uh, esports is esports because of the community and because it grew organically. It, it's not esports because some business guy came in and said, you know, pay me millions of dollars, right? Mm. And so, so as soon as that starts happening, that's where you notice bubbles and, you know, and failures. Um, so I think if, if, if a, a publisher is going to get behind and start doing that, um, you know, and start, you know, really pushing, uh, you know, franchises, they should do it in a reasonable way. Um, you know, honestly, they, they should make it almost free. Like if, if a publisher is is has a great game and it's gaining you know huge traction, they should make it free to pe- to teams that are that meet a certain criteria that have a certain amount of funding mm-hmm. uh, to give them those spots, mm. and then and then maybe charge a percentage you know of of their revenues or a percentage if they sell or something like that. Yeah, we have actually had a model like that happen in Australia before with a publisher here. I'm not sure if I'm allowed, I'm allowed to say who it is, but yeah, something very similar happened here in Australia. If you could, if there was a spot free in their pro league, and you could prove to the publisher that you had, you know, a, a good board, um, some history, and a certain amount of funding, they would they would approve your application to join in the league. Yeah, and that's really cool. That's what they should do. Would your answer be similar to that for um, the Olympics getting involved in esports? Um, well, my, my answer to the Olympics getting involved in esports is, you know, I've always said the, the Olympics is, um, it, it needs that e- needs esports more than esports needs the Olympics. Yeah, I agree. Because they, because they want younger users, you know, or younger viewers and, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I don't really, I think the, the Olympics is irrelevant. You know, if, if, if they, if, if they want esports, they can get esports. If, if they, you know, if they, if, if any other way, it just won't work. Look, I think esports has to be community driven. It has to be grassroots driven. That's why, you know, as I mentioned, 
I don't think like big publishers can come in and charge ridiculous amounts to start, you know, franchises. Mm. Um, that's why Valve is so successful. You know, <clears throat> that's why Riot is so successful. Riot initially, it was very reasonable with these, with these slots and they built it over time. And, and now they've got some real value there. Like if you look at Riot's model, Riot is truly the F1 of esports. They've done such an amazing job building an esport and it's still very popular. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, and I think that's just another reason as to why esports and, and blockchain and cryptocurrency go together so well, right? You you simply can't come in and, and tell esports people what to think, how to feel and what to do because, you know, we've seen it happen in the past with, you know, large corporate entities that have tried to come in in inauthentic ways and the market just doesn't like it. They get pushed out and they get burnt straight away. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, yep. yeah. all about, you know, for me, I guess it's all about open palms and, and listening. And I, I guess it's like I've asked a few times within this podcast and so many times over the rest of my podcast, I'm always trying to think about what should we take from traditional industry and what should we leave behind? Because I feel like we're in such an advantageous position right now where we can avoid some of the issues that have been plaguing traditional sports for hundreds or thousands of years. Um, but we need to be very conscious as to the way that we develop things over this period of time. And, you know, I feel like franchising is a massive debate right now alongside with the Olympics. So, yeah, great to get your thoughts on those for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if um, someone's looking for a job within the market, maybe specifically working under you, there's quite a few people that listen to this podcast that are, you know, developers and marketers and are looking to make their next move or an entry into the market. Is there any key positions that, that Unicorn's trying to fill at the moment as you guys continue to scale? Uh, we are continuing to, to hire people, um, you know, marketing positions and things like that. Um, you know, I, I would just encourage people to go to our website and, and, uh, and take a look. Uh, you know, at what's available, mm -hmm. um, and and uh, and then go from there. But I think that um, you know, in in terms of uh, roles, there's always roles that we're hiring for. It's just you just have to know that we are an international company, so we hire in in various markets around the world. And if someone wants to follow yourself or to learn a bit more about you online, where can they do so? Place to follow me is on Twitter uh, at Rahul Sood. Fantastic, mate. Well, thanks for joining us today, and I'm really interested to see what you guys develop in the, in the crypto space. Like I said, I think a, a lot of people have been, you know, inventing problems or looking for problems to solve, but it sounds like you guys have a, a good roadmap and path of success. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. 